After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. It's Raghu, and I'm back with another edition of Mind Rolling. And uh, before I get into introducing the episode, um, I want to celebrate our one-year anniversary. It was actually in June, and we're actually it's July 4th right now, and uh, so it's a a little over a year, but. Um, Still, I, I want to, I want to thank everyone. I want to thank us for, for the work that we put into it. All the teachers that have been involved. Uh, I want to thank everybody who's been listening and supporting out there. Uh, it's been uh, a very, very uh, adventurous journey for us with Be Here Now Network, and very gratifying. And um, obviously. This can only happen with everybody's support. And from time to time, I, I go on about, you know, how it is that you guys can support what we're doing. From the just out-and-out donations uh, at BeHereNowNetwork.com to uh, grabbing the uh, Amazon URL and using that whenever you shop bookmarking it so that it's right always there and you never have to think about it through uh, just the kind of interest that you have and the kind of feedback that we get um, all of it really goes a long way and uh, again I, I really do thank everybody Every, it's 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 been a a real uh, joint venture for everybody, everybody that works on this and everybody that listens and everybody that supports. So whatever you can do to continue that uh, through the next part of this year, uh, we truly do appreciate it. And I, I think one of the biggest validations that we got that, that everyone really is a participant in, again, is the uh, Life and Balance course, which just finished today, uh, a month-long course which uh, was derived from excerpts of many of the podcasts that you've listened to and that we've done, not just on Mind Rolling, but uh, with some of the other teachers, Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein and Jack Cornfield and Ram Dass and on, uh, and some of the guests, of course, that I have had on Mind Rolling. Uh, it was a, a fabulous experience. It was a real, uh, it felt like such a, a brother and sisterhood 
that came together on the Facebook group and, and the kind of mail that we got. I mean, Rachel uh, Fisher and I, uh, between the two of us, we, we put this thing together and it, it's a two-year-long affair to put it together. But again, so gratifying, the response of it and, and the fact that it was derived from these podcasts, which is really, really a spectacular feeling uh, that that this material and this wonderful content that's it's done in such a extemporaneous manner uh, it's it's really sweet how these words of wisdom can really penetrate one when it feels much more conversational so it was really a delight and uh, uh, you know over 800 uh, people of you participated in this so um, really happy to celebrate uh, this one-year anniversary and really to commemorate it, uh, maybe a little too dramatic, but uh, I did, uh, we would do with the course a webinar every week with one of the teachers and it would be a Q&A and many of you who were, were part of the course who are listening now uh, participated, if not live, uh, we, of course it's all available post-interview, uh, post-seminar. And this last one that I did, because uh, uh, I was hosting them, uh, with Sharon Salzberg. And I've known Sharon for a long, long time. And uh, I just consider her one of the most, not just wisest people, but someone who is so full of love and kindness uh, that uh, it just seeps through every uh, particle of her delivery and what she's saying. And so uh, this particular seminar and uh, the questions were just really, really great questions. And the discussion that we had was, was marvelous, really wonderful. And I wanted to, uh, have, since it was closed to the group, the 800 or so that were part of the, uh, the Life and Balance course, I wanted to share this with everybody. Uh, so what follows here is the uh, seminar, Q&A, whatever we want to call it, uh, with Sharon Salzberg and myself. Uh, I hope you really uh, enjoy and appreciate it because she says some extraordinarily wise things and helpful. Talk about helping keep our lives in balance. So again, thanks to everybody. And, you know, we hope you continue to support however which way you can. And uh, and we hope to have a second half as, uh, of, of this year, as great as the previous year has been, in bringing you more incredible people who can help us navigate, which are difficult waters these days, shall we say. So uh, again, thank you from Be Here Now Network, Love Serve Remember Foundation, and myself, and uh, we'll see you next time on Mind Rolling. Namaste. And this time for the Life and Balance course, I'm Raghu Marcus, and, and I get to hang out. Um, I, I'm very, with Sharon Salzberg, everybody. Say hi, Sharon. Hi. And, and thank you for doing this. Sharon just flew in from England, okay, so <laughs> a little bit of jet lag going on. But, uh, 
you know, as, as many of you know who listen to the podcasts and uh, have done this course and so on, uh, I mean, I am very, very lucky, very fortunate. I have so many great friends who have been on, on this path alongside of me. Uh, talk, talking about Ramdas, this thing of we're all just walking each other home. Uh, this has been so uh, so much grace for me. And one of those people for these many, many, many years has been Sharon, who's been a, a teacher for me and a, and a great, great friend. And uh, we've done a lot of stuff together. So I am really happy to have you here, Sharon. Welcome. I'm so happy to see you. I'm so happy to be with you. Hmm. Albeit in this new electronic form, still. That's great. This is the great part of technology that we can be together like this, yeah. and everybody else out there. Um, I want to tell everybody about who doesn't know. I can't imagine there's anybody who doesn't know because we've really been sharing it. Uh, but uh, Sharon has a new book. It's called Real Love. And uh, she has, if you, if you haven't seen, she's done some wonderful podcasts on her uh, channel on Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com uh, with various people. I mean, some great people. Um, the most recent one uh, being with uh, Congressman Ryan, Tim Ryan. Uh, and uh, all around this subject of real love. So I urge you to go ahead and purchase this book and uh, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and do it through our Amazon link there. That'll be great for everybody. And uh, so one of the great things, one day we were in Maui and I was doing a podcast, kind of, we do this kind of live podcast, and I was doing it with Duncan Trussell, who some of you out there may may know he's a comedian podcaster who is a has been a a, a real a student of Ram Dass's for many years and has uh, he he's just got a wonderful manner about him he's a real character and uh, so he said to Sharon at one point during one of these podcasts Sharon what do you do when you you know first thing in the morning what is your practice and Sharon said, very simply and directly, I sit down and get real. I have never forgotten that. <laughs> it's in my head every time I sit down to, to get into it, let, get real. Mm -hmm. So, uh, wow, I didn't know I said that. That's great. It's great. I want to get a t shirt. Get real. <laughs> get real. Let's, let's get real together. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that uh, I I don't know. You know, we're getting some questions, and I don't know if this question uh, you know will come up. But uh, I I certainly want want you to relate one thing. It'll be my little question started out with. But um, you talk. Uh, a, a, many people have trouble just getting into the practice of sitting for no reason. And feeling like there has to be an outcome or feeling like if I'm not feeling right, then I'm not able to do it or my mind is too crazy or, or whatever. And uh, you have often talked about the opportunity that we have to always begin again. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so crucial. And I'd love to ask you to uh, just explicate that mm -hmm. a little bit. Mm -hmm. Sharon. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think there's an outcome, you know, in all honesty, get real. Uh, there is an outcome, but we tend to look for it in the wrong places and we look too hard. It's like people don't even necessarily, you know, put themselves fully into the process because they're always stepping back to check it. Like, how am I doing? You know, so we're, we can be evaluating constantly, which makes no sense because we're not letting anything unfold. But, but even more than that, people tend to look in the wrong places and that's what really catches people up. So, so many people have said to me, if I'm introduced as a meditation teacher, oh, I tried that once I failed at it. And, uh, you know, and then you think, well, what did you think was going to happen that makes you then think you failed? And so people will say, like, I failed at it because I couldn't stop my thoughts from coming. I couldn't have a totally blank mind. I couldn't keep sleepiness at bay. I couldn't stop from being anxious or whatever it is. And we say that the whole purpose of meditation is not to kind of stop different experiences, but to change your relationship to different experiences. So um, whether those are beautiful and wonderful or difficult and distracted, whatever it is, we're, we're looking at the relationship always. And so um, you might have a billion thoughts and they might all be nasty, but it could be considered really good meditation because you have a certain space from the thoughts or you can watch them come and go. And, and we do get caught inevitably. And that's why my big thing, as you know, is we have to be able to begin again. In some ways, we, if we train in nothing else, that's such huge, such a huge thing for our lives. Like, because nothing in life is a straight shot. You know, we, we have a goal, we go forward, we forget it, we fall down, someone has to help us up, or we get up, we start over. Uh, we have this huge aspiration, we, we can't keep it in mind. Or, uh, you know, whatever it might be, we're always sort of veering and changing and needing to adapt. And uh, maybe that's why the word resilience is so big these days, you know. Maybe even bigger than mindfulness, uh, you know. So uh, we're always—I think that's a huge life skill—and we're practicing it every time we settle our attention on an object of meditation, whether it's the breath or a chant phrase or a loving kindness phrase, whatever it is. You know, it's not long before we're just gone, and so to be able to let go more gently and come back with more care for ourselves. Uh, is a huge benefit out of meditation, but no one will ever look for that, you know. They say, well, I can only be with three breaths. I'm, I'm no good. Or, you know, my mind was full of thoughts. I'm not doing it right. Yeah. Care for ourselves. That's key statements for sure. Mm. And if and in Sharon's book, Real Love, there is, a, there is definitely um, content around self-compassion and self and loving ourselves and caring I, but that's what i love caring just caring you know mm -hmm. it's kind of how the how his holiness mm -hmm. you know kindness is is my only religion is that kind you know simple 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 direct words mm -hmm. so first question um and this is a question that uh i all i can say is this uh Terry, this is from Terry, and Terry, um, I, I can relate with uh, this question quite a bit. I have always had a very reactive temper and destructive anger problem, which has at times resulted in outbursts and behavior I wish I could undo, like me wanting to yell at my dogs right now for barking. <laughs> I've reached the point where I clearly see the root of this anger and desire to control is based on deeply rooted fear and insecurity. 
could you address techniques for dealing with this fear? Suppression obviously doesn't work as it is just as it just comes out in totally inappropriate ways. How can I sit with or examine this anger and underlying fear without getting sucked into it and feeding it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. I think, yeah. I mean, in some ways the gap that we're looking for um, is between what we're feeling and how we're behaving because we feel what we feel. And uh, in any introspective process, we unearth a great deal of feeling usually and of all kinds. And so learning how to be with it more skillfully, which is the heart of this question is the point, not making it go away, you know, or, or wishing it could never come back or feeling like we failed. Because if we could have something like a, a wave of rage, you know, come through us like the weather, <laughs> and not send that email, you know, or not lash out, or at least give it some time, uh, then that's a hugely successful outcome. Um, years ago, I read an article in the New York Times about one of the early, early pilot programs bringing mindfulness into the classroom. Now there's so many more, but this was pretty unusual then. And this was a fourth grade classroom in Oakland. And, and so it's like a nine or 10 year old kid, right? So the journalist asked him, what is mindfulness? And he said, mindfulness means not hitting someone in the mouth. That's what mindfulness means. And I thought that is a great answer. You know, it's a great, great answer. Because what does it imply? It implies knowing we're feeling angry when we start to feel angry, not after it's escalated, not after we've sent the email, not after we've lashed out, right? But as it's beginning. So we learn how to be that much in touch with our bodies, with, you know, with unspoken emotion. And it also implies a certain balanced relationship with the anger, because if we fall into every feeling, if we get uncentered all the time, uh, if we get overwhelmed all the time, we'll hit a lot of people in the mouth, because life could be very frustrating. But at the same time, you know, this is part of the question, if we hate what we're feeling and we, we're afraid of it and we try to repress it, that doesn't work either. We just get tighter and tighter and tighter, and then we explode. So to be able to hang in there and say, this is anger. What does anger feel like? Actually take some interest in it uh, is revolutionary. And that's what we practice every time we're sitting and the anger comes up and then we lose it, but we have to begin again. Uh, and over time, you really do build that kind of confidence and that ability, not just to do it on the cushion, you know, but, but to do it in life. Yeah. You know, and you talk about, there's one thing you're talking about, uh, I want to add here, uh, which is, uh, you've named the add-on, you know, and you tell that great story, I think it was with Joseph. Joseph, yeah. I tell, but um, I do find that uh, when I get triggered in, into um, an anger, uh, I, I, and, and I have enough mindfulness to see it arising and see it reach out and, you know, and uh, through practice, uh, it, mm -hmm. I have enough spaciousness around it so that I'm not acting. Uh, but I do see, the interesting part is how I see whatever triggered this anger just as a trigger. What comes up is so much of the past yeah. frustrations yeah. or anger in one's life uh, that f it's like a flash fire. Mm -hmm. and, you know, So if you don't catch it right away, it, it is consuming. So... Yeah, to talk about add-on, because that's what's happening. In that yeah, moment. well, the story around Joseph was a cute story. I was teaching with my friend, my colleague, Joseph Goldstein, somewhere, and 
Joseph and I were sitting in the kitchen having a cup of tea, and this guy came in and said to Joseph, I just had this really terrible experience. So Joseph said, well, what happened? And he said, I felt all of this tension in my jaw, and I realized what an incredibly uptight person I am and how I always have been and I always will be. And Joseph said, you mean you felt a lot of tension in your jaw? And he said, yes, and I've never been able to get close to people. It's never going to change. And Joseph said, you mean you felt a lot of tension in your jaw? It's kind of watching them go back and forth and back and forth. And <laughs> finally, Joseph said something like, why are you adding a miserable self-image to a painful experience? It's like genuinely painful to feel all that tension in your jaw. But now you're going to be alone for the rest of your life, right? So um, we look for the add-ons. That's one of the ways we define mindfulness. It's like we look for the add-ons and see if we can relinquish the add-ons and just be with our direct experience. And that gives us room to explore. Like anger is really interesting because it tends to be a very complex feeling. Like if you're not freaking out about it and you're not plotting revenge, you know, but you're sitting there almost like saying, what is anger? What does anger feel like? You see, and you watch the anger movie, you know, often you will see fear and you'll see sadness. And um, in Tibetan Buddhism, they say anger is what we pick up when we feel weak because we think it's going to make us strong. So you almost always see a kind of helplessness in there. It's like you don't know what to do, so, you know. Um, so the positive part of the anger is the energy, but the the damaging parts are very strong. So that's another thing we do. Instead of calling it bad or wrong or terrible, as you look at your own anger, reframe that and call it a state of suffering. Like this is a painful state, and, and that will change things as well. Great. All right, next question. And this is from Emily. My therapist tells me that my, my biggest problem it is, is that I believe the things I tell myself, which are mostly things other people have told me about myself, that have gotten stuck in my psyche as truth. Do you have any suggestions for how I can learn to stop believing these deeply ingrained negative thoughts and beliefs about myself so that I can be happy and healthy, which is all I've ever wanted, which is mm -hmm. all any of us ever want. And uh, this is uh, believing our thoughts. Uh, get in a huge line, Emily, on, on that one. Yeah. Well, it's funny because there's a, there's a whole big section in my in the first part of my book about loving oneself, about the stories we tell ourselves. And then I needed more space in a way. So then I have a whole big section on stories others tell about us. Um, which at first my editor was like, I don't know about that. That's like a lot of real estate, you know, about stories. But it ended up like it was right. Um, mm. You know, again, it's it's about understanding we are empowered when we're not trying to demolish something that's happening or annihilate part of our experience. We're empowered when we shift our relationship to it. So um, a story I tell a lot is about um, – <coughs> Uh, going into a house a friend had rented for several of us to do a retreat in. And I went into the bedroom that had been set aside for me and someone had left on the desk a cartoon from the Peanuts comic strip. And in the first frame of the cartoon, Lucy is talking to Charlie Brown and she says, you know, Charlie Brown, what your problem is, the problem with you is that you're you. <laughs> and then in the second frame, poor Charlie Brown says, well, what in the world can I do about that? Then in the third and final frame, Lucy says, well, I don't pretend to be able to give advice. I merely point out the problem. 
And somehow, whenever I was doing walking meditation by that desk, my eye would fall right on that line. The problem with you is that you're you. Because that Lucy dominant voice had been so strong in my earlier life. And that was the story that I told about myself. If I really knew who I was, it would be bad news, right? So, um, but the tools I had learned through the years of practice were, uh, see if you can, I mean, we'd say this sometimes, if you have a very prevalent inner critic, kind of a distinctive voice, give it a name, maybe give it a wardrobe, give it a persona and then relate to it. So I named my inner critic Lucy. And, uh, you know, one of the many kind of varieties of mindfulness methods is mental noting, where you, you place a label on your predominant experience if the word comes easily and it just creates a certain kind of relationship. So my favorite mental note, it was twofold. One, one form of it was, hi, Lucy. Uh, and it actually happened right after I saw the cartoon, something great happened for me. My very next thought was, never going to happen again. And I just responded to that with, hi, Lucy. <laughs> and my favorite form of that was, chill out, Lucy. Just chill out. <laughs> so both of them very different than, you're right, Lucy. You're always right. And they're also very different from, oh, my God, Lucy's still here. I've been meditating all these years. I'm like, spent all that money in therapy, you know, like, Lucy's still here. I can't, you know, I can't get out of it. It's like, you know, those are the two extremes. And we say mindfulness slices right down the middle. We can recognize what's going on. We can be with it. Uh, we have a more spacious relationship to it. And it's like you can get, so Lucy, sit down, have a, have a nice cup of tea, you know, just chill. Mm. Um and it's practice. It's just practice and practice and practice. I love that, though. Yeah. Give it a little name. Yeah. Invite it in. Actually, when Ramdas first came back from India, he used to, his little methodology around the same subject, he would say, oh, you can come in. Please, come in. Sit down. I'm going to give you a cup of tea, and we can have the cup of tea together, and then you can leave. Nice. Yeah. There's a, this is like 19, yeah. right, 69. <laughs> can you believe? Big you know? Jewish accent. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, here's a question um, that uh, is timely actually, because uh, this is something um, I actually had a chat with your friend and mine, Jack Cornfield, uh, a subject that I, I, something he's investigating more these days. And this, this is about trust. Uh, Jassy acts uh, to talk a little bit about trust and forgiveness, but I uh, especially um, very much relate to the word trust. Uh, because, uh, and you know, Sharon has written a book called Faith, and um, that's, that's another big recommendation, by the way, for everybody. Uh, but trust is a way in which trust is uh, much simpler and, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. easier for people to relate with, I think, on a certain level. And, um, and I tell my little story of meeting Ramdas when I first met him, and um, and I, he just gave complete space to uh, me. There wasn't anybody else but me in that moment. 
and there, it, it engendered a tremendous uh, trust mm -hmm. right away. That trust led me eventually to India, and, and this is nothing to, to do with having to go to India, but mm -hmm. that trust led me through really to obviously to India to meet Neem Karoli Baba and Maharaji, uh, and, but to guide me uh, through these decades in terms of really being able to connect with my inner, call it intuition, spiritual heart, whatever, something away from mind, ego, and so on. Mm -hmm. that that trust really grew and and eventually it uh, it became i could actually relate to the word faith after mm -hmm. some time mm -hmm. so trust yeah talk about trust that's interesting because i was just in england uh, a few hours ago <laughs> it feels like yeah. and uh because the book came out uh, real life came out and in uh, the uk actually a couple of days before it came out here um and I was talking to the British publisher, who's an old, old friend of mine, and and somehow the topic of faith came up, and, and she said you should have called that book Trust, which I thought was very funny, um, mm -hmm. probably true, um, because faith is such an enormous word for us to take in, and, and even my friends at the time, a lot of them, not everybody, of course, but a lot of them were like, why are you writing a book called Faith? You know, like. Uh, it's just too hard because for so many people, faith had come to mean being silenced and uh, not being able to ask questions and kind of deferring to some some authority, you know, uh, not really knowing things for yourself. And it was a pretty unpleasant, unattractive state to be cultivating. And uh, and trust is is a certainly a more palatable word. I'm not sure. Um, just as faith is often used in, in a lot of different ways, trust is probably used in, in as many different ways. You know, trust in an extremely mechanical sense. I trust the sun's going to rise tomorrow because it's kind of done that every day of my life, you know. Uh, but there's also a trust that has to do with um, coming in, in line with the truth, uh, not needing to be in control. Uh, which we never are anyway, but not needing the feeling that we're going to someday be in control. Um, I was thinking uh, earlier about just the process of writing, you know, like like this book, Real Love is my 10th book. Oh. And I probably had the most difficulty writing. None of them are necessarily easy for me, but faith was probably the hardest. Um, and uh, in the course of some of the many times I was stuck writing faith, I had a, a meeting with like this writing coach, this fabulous writer named Susan Griffith from uh, the Bay Area. And uh, she said to me, you've got to get rid of the idea that you're writing this book and start thinking of yourself as the first person who gets to read this book. And I thought that was totally right, you know, because when I felt I was writing it, it was very egoic. And I, 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 I would, you know, it wasn't egoic in the sense of, I wasn't envisioning myself getting the Nobel Prize for Literature or anything, but I wanted to do justice to the topic. And it meant so much to me that it really be like superlative and that, you know, everyone turned around and had a different understanding of faith. And it was like, really, you know, it wasn't in my hands anyway, you know, to do that, that the best I could do was, kind of step aside and, and let it come through. And that's the sense of being the first person who gets to read it. It's like, I'm looking at the screen, I think, look at that, words came. 
and I'm the first one who gets to read them. How, how beautiful is that? So, and I think it's like that with so many things, right? We want to, we want to be in control. We think things will go so much better if we are in control and we're not ever going to be in control. And we have to step back, not to be unskillful or lazy or, you know, not to put our best effort in. It's something different than that, but it's that extra thing we do, you know, of saying, um, I'm going to make it work rather than saying, I'm going to put everything I can into it and we'll see, you know, how it unfolds. Yeah. And there's another question. It's kind of in a similar vein, a different topic, but, uh, and it's, uh, it's again, it's a word that, you know, with lots of implications in this case, surrender. And Rahim is asking, how do we surrender to our highest self? And there's a lot of implications in that, those, that small statement. Uh, but, uh, and, uh, you know, we, uh, our friend from, our mentor from India, K.K. Shah, who was just here and was at our retreat that we just did in the spring, um, not in this particular uh, retreat, but in, in a past one, he talked about surrender a lot. And he said, it's, I, he said, it's very difficult for people in the West to understand, according to our, to the Bhakti Hindu tradition, which is his tradition, our tradition, um, it's very difficult to people to understand because they think it's about giving up something to something or someone mm -hmm. else. And in act, in reality, he said, surrender is the highest uh, realization before completely dissolving out of subject object. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it, it, so it's, it's, uh, it's a difficult word and certainly interpreting it through Buddhist lens would be helpful. Uh, it is a very difficult word. I mean, in some ways, they're all difficult words. Like um, even mindfulness, which is correctly translated sometimes um, or defined as uh, accepting things the way that they are. Acceptance is another difficult word. Accepting things the way that they are, or being with your experience without judging, uh, can make it seem awfully inert, like you lose common sense and you get kind of stupid. And yeah. um, you know, and I was once giving some meditation instruction, and often when we're working with the breath, we actually start with listening to sound because it's a way of sort of relaxing and opening, and then we move to the body and the breath. And so I'd gotten only as far as listening to sound, and somebody raised his hand and said, well, what if it's the sound of the smoke alarm I hear going off? Should I sit here mindfully knowing the smoke alarm is going off, or should I get up? And I said, I'd get up, you know, <laughs> But his question actually made sense because it sounds kind of like that. You're going to surrender to what is. You're just going to accept things the way that they are. You know, and you're going to be like a doormat. And it doesn't mean that at all. It's a very creative and dynamic way of being with your experience in the moment. Um, but I actually got something else from the question because it was interesting. The point about surrendering to my high, the highest part of my being, I would almost play with replacing surrender with acknowledge. Like even to acknowledge there is a capacity within us to be better, to be realized and to uh, connect and to care and to love and all of that. That's not always so easy either. Um, you know, so I was just intrigued, you know, with, with that choice of that phrasing, that phrasing, you know, especially connecting surrender to the highest part of our being. I would start with acknowledging it and 
Mm-hmm. And sometimes we just actually have to remind ourselves, you know, certainly from the Buddhist point of view, everybody simply because we exist and not because, you know, by next year you're going to deserve it or something. Everyone just because we exist is said to have a capacity for wisdom and clarity and connection and love and so on. And that capacity is often obviously covered over and hard to find and hard to trust and, and so on, but it's there that nothing we might go through could ever actually destroy it as a potential, as a capacity. And it's on the basis of that capacity that we practice meditation, you know, so uh, that is a part of us as much as, our bad habits are part of us, you know, and, and I would, you know, that's an interesting question. Where do we put our attention? You know, like, do we only think about our bad habits or can we give a little air time to the possibility that, you know, Oh, maybe I have this capacity as well. Mm. Mm. Acknowledging higher self synonymous with sitting down on your mat and getting real. I yeah, would say. yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. A good start. Uh, here's a question that's a little bit different around meditation. Um, and this is around loving kindness meditation, metta. Is there any significance to full body vib- tingling vibration when doing loving kindness or metta meditation versus feeling a dark emptiness doing metta? The former came during, during, uh, uh, Goenka courses and remaining without expectation. I'm not sure what that means, but um, but interesting. Um, I myself, as you as you know, as my teacher, have had a problem with loving kindness in all the time that I we've known each other and loving kindness meditate. Not with loving kindness. I hope I don't have a problem with loving kindness. No, you don't. But the 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 meta meditation. I always preferred the straight ahead Vipassana and so on. Anyhow, um, this is an interesting... I should give you the dates of my meta course in Barry, Massachusetts. Yes, you should. Just once, just once and come. I'm going to come. I am going to come. But let uh, maybe you can respond to these two different, uh, uh, mm-hmm. very different experiences that this uh, that uh, William Wallen had. <laughs> well, you know, I, I mean, I've been meditating as you have. I mean, the numbers get alarming after a while, you know, it's like over 45 years <coughs> and you kind of go through so much. It's a little hard to say, well, that was kind of a better experience than that, you know? Um, and especially in terms of going, cause teaching, which is so body oriented and find the fine flow of sensations anyway. And that's how he, that's what he emphasized in, in loving kindness practice uh, as well, which he did, as you know, just, at the very end of a 10-day retreat, almost as a kind of ceremonial way of saying goodbye. But it was keeping the thread of that uh, very very great sensitivity to the flow of energy in your body, and that's how the the metta was was manifesting. And I, I don't think that there's like a, a... I wouldn't hold on to either experience, you know, and sort of solidify or reify it and uh, just to understand that there's such a huge range of experience that comes up. I mean, even in, in very um, fundamental terms, uh, in in first learning, you know, about concentration. So concentration as a factor of mind is a, it's an intensifier. And so you realize as you get more concentrated that we live barely on the surface of things, that there's so much 
happening in so many different levels. And, you know, the kind of classic example that everyone tends to long for is just seeing all these lights, you know, and seeing like brilliant white light or seeing uh, golden light or something like that. And so, of course, that's what I wanted. And then uh, there are a lot of experiences of concentration that are equally signs of concentration that, you know, like itching all over your body. It's like no one wants that one, you know. And if you have itching all over your body, you don't think, oh, I wonder if I'm really concentrated. You know, you think something's really wrong, right? Whereas, you know, if only I could get concentrated enough to have light, but you are concentrated enough, it's just manifesting differently. And so, um, you know, we get very lost in, in sort of analyzing different states, but it's very hard to say, you know, that one's preferable to another. No choice. If we could get to no choice in in uh, in in India, it's called uh, no icha. Food, no food. There's yeah. babas, you know, who are yeah. living in this place. You know, yeah. cold, hot. You know, no icha. I think we have time for one more question. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is a very minor question. Uh, I'm fooling you. Uh, <laughs> this is from Tracy, but the question's from her eight-year-old daughter, Molly, for you. Why are we so afraid of death? Oh, <laughs> those eight-year-olds, man. Yeah, They're really. so together. <laughs> I think uh, two things. One is it's really a mystery, like what happens after we die. And we, we uh, uh, don't necessarily feel that some people like mysteries. They like not knowing, but the culture tells us we've got to know everything, you know. And, and the other thing is that I think we, as a culture, we've gotten kind of far from nature. So we're not used to the natural cycles that much, you know, you can buy an avocado wherever you are, <laughs> whatever season, <laughs> you know, we're not, we're not that used to arising and passing away that inevitably happens in, in all of life. And, um, atmospheres are very artificial and, and so on. So, um, and the further we get from nature, the weirder we get. <laughs> so, and, and the things that are of nature start seeming stranger and stranger, and we're we're more alienated from them. Mm. Yeah, and uh, we're back to getting real uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. Sitting on your mat, getting real means uh, making friends with change, mm -hmm. right, and impermanence, and uh, the more practice of that then uh, as we go into these really big changes of, yeah, yeah. through aging and so on, and then I think we're a little bit more spacious in our ability to, to um, relate with them without tremendous fear. So I'm mean, going to tell Raghu that, I mean, and anyone who's sat with me lately knows one of my bugaboos, but anyway, I told Raghu that in the interim when we tested the technology for this exchange and, and it was actually happening, I applied for a renewal of my driver's license in Massachusetts online, which I was very happy about. Um, but it got to the place where I had to enter my year of birth. And 
and I had it go down and down and yeah, down, go way down, down and down. And down. I thought, that's ridiculous. You know, people like two years old can't drive. Why'd you start way up there? Like down yeah. and down and down. I thought, how did that happen? Yeah. You know, like when I met, you know, so many of my closest friends, I was about 18 years old, you know? So how did that happen? It's outrageous. But it happens. That's that's real. That's the nature of things. Yeah. Don't forget everybody, real love too. It's so great. Sharon's new book. Please uh, avail yourself of it. And hey, Sharon, thank you so yeah, much. You. This is, you know, this is a great job. Get to hang out with you and everybody else that are part of our family. So thank you, everybody who's uh, watching now and who will be watching later. Uh, we're happy to have you with us and happy that you've been part of this course and I t I've told Sharon how great the Facebook group uh, has been though you know I think uh, even more than half of the people who signed up for the courses you know have uh, gotten themselves on Facebook and are sharing the sharing is just wonderful to see everybody I mean uh, it is uh, truly uh, a very fulfilling experience for everybody involved including those of us that are, are either giving the course or help to put it together. And so uh, thank you and continue to um, finish out the course. What, Rachel, another 10 days or eight days, something like that? Does Rachel. anybody ever see Rachel or is she the mysterious Nobody, Okay, come. come. It's like the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. Yeah, right. Nobody ever sees Rachel. So everybody, this is Rachel Hi. Fisher. Hello. Who's put Not this. Really prepared to be presented to the group, but they can't hear anything, but yes, well, thanks for coming. It's been really wonderful. And we obviously have a week left of the course, but this is our last Q&A, so. Thank you for everything you've done. Rachel has done a tremendous job putting this together. So thank you. Thank you. Thank You're you. Welcome. Thank you, Sharon. Thanks, thank you Sharon. so much. Uh, everybody, we will see you next time. Namaste.